Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation. From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Nathan Connolly. I'm Joanne Freeman. And I'm Brian Bellow. 100 years ago, Europe was bogged down in the final years of the First World War, which had cost millions of lives. But a more deadly onslaught was to come. As early as the spring of 1918, soldiers started getting sick, not just here in the United States, but all across the world. They were coming down with something like the flu. And historian Nancy Bristow says that the flu was nothing new. Influenza, the grip, they use those terms interchangeably, has become a a domesticated illness. It's something they expect to see every year. And indeed, they expect some people to die of it every year. But as the infection spread from soldier to soldier and then soldier to civilian, doctors realized this flu was not what they were used to treating. Right away, they can see that the pace of infection is very fast. It's moving from city to city to city very quickly. The progression through a single patient is very rapid in some cases. Often it would take a week or two for someone to die, but it could happen in less than 24 hours, literally from being healthy to being dead. For military doctors, nowhere was this more apparent than Fort Devens in Massachusetts. That September, the epidemic struck the base, which housed 50,000 soldiers. Within weeks, over 10,000 of those men came down with the virus and its horrific symptoms. One doctor there wrote to a friend about the devastation. These men start with what appears to be an attack of la grippe or influenza. We've been averaging about 100 deaths per day and still keeping it up. The first manifestation uh, would be headaches and aches and pains and a desperate desire to go to bed. Virologist John Oxford. Now, that that can be associated with a cough as well and a a sky-high temperature. They may be suffering from chills and sort of what were described as nervous symptoms. And that was only the beginning. Within maybe at two days of you having all those symptoms, you're lying there with your cough, um, you may find the cough is not getting any better. Is it distressing cough? Leading eventually to delirium, unconsciousness, hemorrhaging taking place in the lungs, so people are really struggling to get a breath. Their bodies, as a result of that absence of oxygen, begin to be discolored, turning blue or purple. And it's been called a heliotrope cyanosis. And what it means, heliotrope, is lavender-colored. Two hours after admission, they have the mahogany spots over the cheekbones. And a few hours later, you can begin to see the cyanosis extending from their ears and spreading all over the face, until it is hard to distinguish the colored men from the white. So if a, if a matron, like in my own hospital, the Royal London, came into the ward, we could look, down, look down the beds in that ward and any patient lying there that had this blue, this, this lavender coloration of the face, blue lips and blue ears, she could more or less say, well, hang on a minute to the nurse. Well, we can prepare those beds because they're going to die. Back in 
It is only a matter of a few hours then until death comes, and it is simply a struggle for air until they suffocate. It is horrible. They would find that the lungs had the appearance, as one doctor says, like the lungs of the drowned. People were literally drowning in their own bodily fluids. One can stand it to see one, two, or 20 men die. But to see these poor devils dropping like flies sort of gets on your nerves. And there was something else about this disease which horrified doctors. Typically, flu tended to attack the very young and the elderly. But this flu was killing people in the prime of their lives. So in a regular mortality chart for influenza, you have a U with the high influenza mortality being among the very young at the left end of the chart and the very old at the right end of the chart. In 1918, you have what we call a W chart because you have a spike in the middle, those young adults, the very people who are the leaders of a society, the teachers, the, the politicians, the, the parents. Uh, and almost half of the deaths in this pandemic take place uh, in individuals between the ages of 20 and 40, which is extraordinarily uncommon. Yeah, I, I remember my wife telling me when I told her what the topic was for Backstory that um, her grandmother died. And I asked how old, you know, 30 or 32 years old, right? That spike in the middle of the W. Right. That's exactly right. And when I give talks about this, there are always people in the audience with those family stories. Including her own. Bristow took an interest in the pandemic when she learned that her own great-grandparents had died from the illness, dubbed the Spanish flu. It's a misnomer um, based on the reality that Spain didn't have wartime censorship because they're a neutral in the war. And when this outbreak started, uh, you know, you didn't want to let the Germans know, or the Germans didn't want to let the English know that they have a bit of a problem in the background. Um, and so everyone kept quiet about it. In Spain, why should they keep quiet? They, they had nothing to do with the war, really. And the king, Alfonso II, was ill. The prime minister was ill. Everyone seemed to be ill. And suddenly the newspapers were full of it in Spain. And the rest of the world, I think, looked around. So what's going on in Spain? And so since that time, much to the annoyance of the Spanish and much to the annoyance of Spanish virologists, I can tell you, um, we've all called it the Spanish flu ever since. No matter what doctors should have called it, one thing was clear. This is just not regular influenza, that they are in the throes of something new and horrifying and for which they are going to be a bit at sea. As we approach peak flu season, people are lining up all over the country to get their vaccine in time to avoid the deadly virus. But a century ago in 1918, America and the world was in the grip of a flu pandemic. By the time it ended, the number of deaths were estimated at between 50 and 100 million people worldwide. Today, we're looking at the Spanish flu, tracking the impact it had on communities in the United States and across the world, hearing how some people fought back against a disease which ravaged whole cities, and asking a disturbing question. Could such a devastating flu pandemic ever happen again? But first... We're going to return to our conversation with Nancy Bristow. We'll hear more from virologist John Oxford later in the program. 
Scholars estimate that 675,000 Americans died from the Spanish flu and that a quarter of the population was infected. This put a huge strain on the country's medical resources and on its medical personnel, who were desperate to stop the spread of this disease. On the local level, the actual fighting that takes place is at the local public health boards so that you have in cities and towns across the country these public health experts who are trying to impose restrictions on the behaviors of their people. Uh, So what were some of the specific measures that local health boards took? Well, they started with the easiest ones, and these always make my audiences smile. They outlawed spitting in public, and they took away what was called the the shared or public drinking cup. So today we imagine a water fountain with a stream of water. In the old days, you just grabbed the same cup right. the person behind you and the person in front of you would use. So those are the easy things. That's the low-hanging fruit. And did they actually uh, organize shopping on different days for different people? In some communities, they would have staggered work hours. They would have um, staggered shopping hours. And what that means literally is just that if you had things open at different times, it would keep the public transportation less crowded, for mm-hmm. instance. So the purpose is just to, to establish sort of a calendar across the day so that people would be in smaller numbers so that you could, could stretch the public out across the hours of the day rather than having everybody doing the same things at the same moment. But gradually, they would impose much more interventionist measures. So they might at first just ban public meetings, and then they might move on to closing down bars and closing down uh, public amusements. And then they might decide that even the schools and churches needed to be closed. And then they might impose a public masking where everyone in public had to wear a gauze mask and might also engage with quarantining. Those would be the most interventionist and the most highly resisted actions that they would take. Did people come to any conclusions about the effectiveness of those efforts? Something like quarantine. There were places that did use it. Did they fare better in the long run? They did fare better in the long run. I'm not certain that at the time they could tell that. We know that today, Mm -hmm. though, um, that quarantining um, and public distancing measures were really helpful. And the cities that had the earliest and longest restrictions on their publics had the best long-term results. They had the lowest death rates. Now, what did people do to fight the flu? And was there anything that could be done uh, to treat this? There's nothing that can be done to treat it. In other words, you cannot address the illness itself. You can only treat the symptoms. And so they are taking good care, uh, the nurses in particular, taking good care of the patients, not simply fluffing pillows, but keeping somebody warm, keeping them dry, keeping them clean, keeping them hydrated to the extent possible, giving them pain medication. Those were all useful things to do. And I'm guessing that that health care was very gendered. I'm guessing that the docs were guys and that the disproportionate number of nurses were women. That's exactly right. And it's it's certainly what people expected, even when there were exceptions to it. So as you read press accounts, they talk about the nurses as, you know, angels in white. And they talk about physicians and their strength and their expertise and their capacities to do these sort of manly things. 
that's so, a setup for trouble. Yeah. How, how, how did that work out when, by your description, uh, the guys, the experts, are not being terribly successful in their approach? For nurses who were primarily women, the pandemic was a positive experience of sorts in letters and diaries and yearbooks. They write about how horrific it was to observe these illnesses, but how fulfilled they felt, how empowered they were, even the kind of camaraderie and joy they found in doing good service together. And this is a real boon to nursing as a profession. For the physicians, you can read letters and diaries casting first that horrific vision of how awful it was to see this, and then the kind of defeat that this felt, the kind of meaning this carried for one's professional identity, and the kind of, um, not embarrassment, but kind of pain of loss uh, in their capacity to believe in what was possible. And this comes on the heels of quite a bit of medical and public health optimism. Is, is that correct? That's absolutely right. And I think that's another piece of what makes this so frightening. People were unprepared. Just as we've said, they're used to influenza, but they also thought that they were in an era in which infectious disease was on its way out, that medicine and public health was advancing so rapidly that they would be able to eliminate things like the yearly flu. And why did they believe that? What was happening? The bacteriological revolution takes place in the late 19th century, where people in Europe, those famous doctors like Pasteur and Koch, are doing the work of discovering bacteria. Mm -hmm. They can finally, for the first time, identify the causal agent of illnesses. Now, did people understand that the flu was not bacterial? Or did no. they figure that out? So there is a theory about something that's even smaller than the bacteria they're able to see. There are people who are aware that that is existing, but they can't see it. They just can't see it yet. The technology is not available. So they can only operate on a theory. And this is one of the problems that I think the scientists and the physicians are facing during the pandemic. Right. And people write about, you know, I will never again talk about my profession being capable of doing everything and anything. Victor Vaughn, who was a very important, distinguished leader of American medicine, he was dean of the University of Michigan Medical School. He had already completed a term as the president of the American Medical Association. And he writes in his memoir in 1926 this about his experience doing, during the pandemic. The saddest part of my life was when I witnessed the hundreds of deaths of soldiers in the army camps and did not know what to do. At that moment, I decided never again to pray about the great achievements of medical science and to humbly admit our dense ignorance in this case. That's unbelievably horrible. It is. If we step back a little bit and look at the optimism about, you know, stamping out infectious diseases uh, at the turn of the 20th century, there's a real parallel there. And the parallel is to the optimism, believe it or not, of stamping out great wars. People believe very strongly that better transportation, more trade was bringing the world together. Do you see any parallels uh, between the optimism on the war front and the disease front and then, in fact, what World War I and this pandemic led to? 
I do. What's interesting for me is the way it plays in the aftermath, which is that in the aftermath of both the flu and the war, the nation is able to retain its optimism. And it retains it, I think, because of that war and what it does. So that in the public sphere, Americans feel bigger, stronger, and more important in the aftermath of the war, despite the disappointment and the disillusionment that the war brought. We see it in the 1920s with the explosion of the American economy and a great deal of belief that the way we're doing things is the way we should do things and the withdrawal, in fact, from government activism, for instance. But in the aftermath of the pandemic, it's much harder to draw a kind of optimistic picture. Does that mean that the war eclipses the pandemic quite quickly in people's memory? That's exactly what happens. The pandemic, as you know, is referred to by many and most famously by Alfred Crosby, the great historian, Mm -hmm. as the forgotten pandemic. And there are a number of reasons that that happens, but certainly the war eclipses it, and in part because the war is a better story. The pandemic is the wrong story for where the nation sees itself in the aftermath of World War One, And I think it's much easier to subsume it under this glorious victory of the war And as a result, to simply forget it in terms of its place in the public eye. There are no memorials. There are no anniversaries held for those who died or for those who, quote, fought the pandemic. It just disappears. Nancy Presto is a historian at the University of Puget Sound and the author of American Pandemic, The Lost Worlds of the 1918 Influenza Epidemic. I think that Nancy Pristow raised a really great point. I mean, why is it we don't have memorials to those who died in the pandemic and those who fought that pandemic. You know, we've got memorials for the soldiers who died in World War I. Well, medical professionals and volunteers knew that they were risking their lives by taking care of the sick, just like soldiers knew they oh, were they risking their lives by fighting in the war. They knew that. The question is, if, if you're talking about how we remember those people, that's mm-hmm. a different question. That's a question of how do other people perceive what they're doing and, and that risk? And do they understand that, that there's a, you know, a, literally an invader that's being attacked? Right. So I, I get it. So you're saying that today in an age of antibiotics and where people, some people, of course, do die from the flu every year, but where we don't have millions of people dying Today, we just don't recognize the heroism right. of those public health officials. Got it. Or the threat, uh-huh. right? Or the threat. I mean, the, for the fact right. of the matter is, even just this year, like, uh, there's this sort of low hum of a refrain this year of, like, hey, guys, like, this year it's a little more serious. Yeah. Like, you it's a little more serious. People are actually dying. And it's taken quite a lot for that message to even sort of begin to whisper its way into the public. I mean, I, I just think maybe we do sort of take for granted, just as you're saying, that well, it's a disease and diseases have cures. So, right. so your answer, Joanne, is that we failed as historians. Oh, gosh. <laughs> That's a nice, a nice optimistic note. Gee, thanks, Ryan. Uh, <laughs> I'm taking part of the blame. I mean, the point is we have not been successful at 
letting people understand uh, that, you know, first of all, more people died globally from this than World War One, for instance, and that the, quote, soldiers fighting it were risking their lives. No, but I mean, but, but I think there is something to the fact that, you know, you, you get these diseases kind of every year. It's now factored into being part of the rhythm of Americans' lives, you know. Um, right. and, and you get a certain, shot. You, you get a shot. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and we feel as if, you know, it's something that we kind of manage in the way that you manage, you know, an ulcer or something like that, you know, on a kind of societal level. Uh, but, but just to be very clear, I mean, there aren't many monuments to doctors Period, right? We we tend to like building monuments. What do you mean, Nathan? You teach at one of them? (laughs) Well, no, but even the Johns Hopkins University um, is not about you know the physicians necessarily. It's about Johns Hopkins, the philanthropists, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah, and, but it's, I think it's also really key, right, that you have a country that at a broad level of commemoration in its culture will build, you know, monuments to generals who lost the war, as we've been talking about for quite some time, mm-hmm. rather than having, you know, the kinds mm-hmm. of things that might reflect broad commitments by, you know, many thousands of people trying to fight back the ravages of a pandemic like flu. Um, and I think it's also, you know, I think valid, to, as you point out, Brian, you know, the, the tens and hundreds of thousands of people that are losing their lives to these diseases in some ways also become, through the passage of time, kind of faceless casualties, right? We, we don't mm-hmm. have a way of talking about the ravages of public health in, you know, K through 12 education. This isn't part of the fables that we talk about America and how it's able to conquer this or that. Even the eradication of polio, that, that word eradication, you know, it's almost like a moment in time, but people don't go back and think about, you know, how polio was really dealt with as part of the general education of most people. It ends up having to be a kind of flashpoint um, in more specialized conversations. So all, all this to say, I think, you know, scholars certainly have, I think, been doing their work to try to get the narrative out there. But I think it's also a heavier lift in terms of what kinds of things count as events for most Americans. And things like pandemics, you know, for, for lack of a, of a better word, really do fly under the radar for most of the time. Well, and what's a victory in that kind of a war? Well, antibiotics and vaccines, that strikes me as every bit as much a victory as the one won in World War I, which would most scholars would say led pretty directly to World War II. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I think there are victories like that. And, and we could name, you know, Jonas Salk. I mean, we could name medical professionals mm-hmm. who've done things that we remember. And we remember the person who created or innovated that particular discovery. But um, the the... Although, although you're right, though, Joanne, is no sooner is victory declared than we completely forget about it because people don't worry about that disease right. anymore. You take a pill right. and what's the big <laughs> that's, deal? That's, that's the point. That's the right. point of exactly. curing it, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to right. be forgotten. Right. Right. That's exactly true. We're trying really hard to forget about this thing. So, so if I hear you correctly, you're calling for the tomb of the unknown doctor or even better, the tomb of the unknown nurse. When the flu took hold, it was so devastating, it could overcome whole cities and their civic structures. In Philadelphia, the flu's progress was aided by a massive gathering on the 28th of September, 1918. 
Americans across the country were gathering in support of the Liberty Loan Drive. They were encouraged to buy bonds to support the war effort, and many cities held patriotic celebrations. Historian James Higgins says the largest one was in Philadelphia. There's a mock bombing raid. Anti-aircraft guns are hidden throughout the city with dud anti-aircraft shells that they fire off. It is a huge celebration. And the parade marches 23 blocks from North Philadelphia to South Philadelphia. And that day, there are sing-alongs uh, numbering in their hundreds throughout the city. Uh, people are packed cheek by jowl on the trolleys and the sidewalks uh, to get to the parade. And then, of course, uh, people are standing there for hours watching the parade go by. There had been scattered cases of influenza in Philly, which had been brought to the city by sailors from the naval base in Boston. But the Liberty Loan celebration exposed almost the entire population of the city to the virus, and almost all at once. And that night, I'd like to suggest that the half of the city that went to the parade went home to the half of the city that didn't go to the parade. Within one week of the parade, Philadelphia officially logs 1,100 deaths. Many doctors and nurses had been called away to war, and the city's hospitals were quickly overwhelmed. Funeral homes ran out of coffins, and grave diggers who had to dig everything by hand couldn't keep up with the number of bodies. The morgue for the city of Philadelphia only had room for 36. We have a couple of photographs from inside that morgue. And there are bodies with towels and sheets and a bit of cloth over the faces strewn on the floor. They're on embalming tables. Uh, we know from written records that they are stacked on desks and they're piled in corners. And the atmosphere inside the city morgue becomes uh, so cloying that the back doors are thrown open. And the liquid that's running out of people uh, moves across the floor and onto the sidewalk. And little boys have to be shooed away by adults because they're, they're gawking uh, through the doors at all the bodies inside. Even more horrifying, as the morgues filled up, deceased family members were left around the home, stretched out on couches, sat up in chairs, and put under tables. Panic spread throughout the city, along with the smell. People are walking down the street and they can, they can tell which house has a body laying in it by the smell alone. And so it is a, a terrifying uh, sort of realization that you are walking down a street in metropolitan Philadelphia and you're passing a home where you know there's a body laying. And when you walk through some of the most densely packed of the neighborhoods, um, people's senses are assaulted by it. And this adds to such a, a great deal of the fear that people already feel uh, as everyone around them gets sick and as you wait for your own symptoms to develop. This was a city in crisis. Its systems couldn't cope with the sheer number of the dead. When it was clear that the city was unable to keep up, they turned to the largest charitable organization in Philadelphia, the Roman Catholic Church. On October 14th, young men from St. Charles Borromeo Seminary removed more than 400 bodies from the city morgue. And this must have been like untangling the bodies at Dachau 
and other concentration camps that American and British soldiers liberate at the end of World War II. Some people are stacked like cordwood, and others are thrown into heaps. And they've been there for days. Those bodies, along with others from homes around Philadelphia, were buried in Potter's Field. Uh, Where the poor, the indigent, and the unknown are buried by the city of Philadelphia. Many of Philadelphia's immigrants who died from the flu, Irish, Italian, Polish, were Catholic and had been left on the grounds of Holy Cross Cemetery. The seminarians who go there, and there are dozens, report that there are bodies lying all over the cemetery grounds. They've been pushed into sheds and horse sheds. They've been pushed into the office. They're laying on the grounds of the cemetery itself amongst tombstones. Bodies are brought in coal carts, children's wagons. One of the seminarians recalls a pitiful scene of an Italian father with his one or two-year-old baby has been put in a pasta box. Another father uh, brings one of his children and they are in a citrus fruit bag, a burlap sack, because even if he could afford a coffin, there are no coffins to be found in the city of Philadelphia anywhere by the second week of October. The seminarian spent the first day digging individual graves until 10 o'clock at night, but the numbers of bodies were so great that it became clear that this wouldn't be sustainable. And so the decision is made to begin excavating large communal graves, trench graves. These are not holes where you toss bodies. That's not what they do. They dig 60-foot-long trenches 10 feet deep where dozens of boxes would lay on top of each other. They meticulously record the location of every body in case family members wanted to exhume it later for burial in an individual plot. An eyewitness recalls uh, in the evening and the sun is down, that she hears Latin being spoken. De profundis clamaviate domine, domine exari voce mea. And she comes around some, some tombstones and finds a number of seminarians in one of these mass graves. And they are reciting uh, the, the De Profundis uh, from the Old Testament. And uh, it, it goes in part uh, from the depths, O Lord, I cry out to you. It's a lamentation psalm. And they are saying the prayers over the dead, blessing them with holy water, and stacking the coffins too high. Higgins says that there is evidence that up to 3,400 people were buried by the Philadelphia seminarians in just about three weeks' time. The trench graves at Holy Cross Cemetery are still there today, and Potter's Field has been turned into a parking lot. And that's a fitting image, because most Americans have forgotten about the Spanish flu and know nothing about the way it could ravage whole American cities. But James Higgins is not surprised. It's not exceptional, I don't think, for the public to forget about epidemics. 
I wager if you ask most Americans, even most Philadelphians, tell me a little something about the yellow fever epidemic of 1793 that killed 10 or 15% of the entire city of Philadelphia. Most won't be able to tell you anything about it. What I find more exceptional is that the historical community, the professional historians, the scholars, the professors, the writers, the researchers, uh, they too have forgotten it. They have somehow missed, they have somehow overlooked and ignored an event that kills more Americans than the Civil War in just a couple of months' time. James Higgins is a historian at the University of Houston, Victoria. He's the author of A Brief History of Pennsylvania Medicine. The impact of this disease was felt across the globe. Spanish flu didn't respect national boundaries and would travel with soldiers headed home on boats and trains along the connective tissue of the modern world of 1918. Today's world is connected in ways undreamed of at the beginning of the 20th century, and today's doctors and public health officials are acutely conscious of pandemic threats in a world bridged by international air travel, subway systems, conferences, and pop concerts. Earlier in the show, we heard from virologist John Oxford. He spoke to us from London, and I asked him about the international impact of the Spanish flu. The deaths varied quite a lot in different countries. In some countries, for example, in Labrador, nearly 100% of people in, in some of the villages died. And yet, in one place on this planet, actually organized by the United States, that is in Samoa, um, there was a complete quarantine, and as far as I know, no one died. Unbelievable. What was it about this particular flu that caused so many deaths? Was it the strain of the flu virus or something else? It's probably a combination of things. I mean, groups in the States have resurrected the virus. They've tested it in little animal models, in mice, in cell culture. It does look slightly more virulent, maybe five times, but I don't think that really explains the the deaths in 1918. And then you come on to the most recent um, uh, possibility, which has always been in the background, that it somewhat depends on our immune history. What was the history of an old person? How many strains had they been infected with before 1918? Had they been infected with anything at all? So you've got that combination. You've got what the past immune history, the past infection history has been. On top of that, you've got a virus which is perhaps a little bit more virulent than a common or garden one. But on top of that, again, you've got one other factor that, of course, 1918 was very much a bacteriological world. There were bacteria all over the place, pre-antibiotic. So we know now that that must have made, you know, that was another factor that, um, that comes into it. How to explain the global reach of this pandemic? I understand it made it as far as the Arctic Circle. 
There the war, I think, has a lot to answer for. Will all the troops, including American troops in Europe by the autumn of 1918, British troops and colonial troops from all the colonies, and in 19, November 1918, suddenly the whole thing finishes and they all want to go home. There's a huge movement of young men, 18, 19, 20-year-olds. There were some of them carrying the influenza. The boat comes into South Africa. They go home up the the railway lines. The railway lines were quite important in carrying this virus. It's a transport mechanism in 1918. They go to the furthest most spots in South Africa. Their parents that weekend call their friends in from a radius of about 10 miles. They come in by horse and cart to celebrate the young man coming home, and they all catch it. So it's a question of people movement, and there are a lot of people moving, probably more than had ever been moved before, probably 10, 15 million young people on the move, and that had a lot to do with it, I think. Well, you mentioned uh, the war as a crucial factor in transmitting this disease. Uh, Obviously, the war killed tens of millions of people. How do the casualties from World War I compare to the totals uh, from the influenza pandemic? Well, very much, they were very much smaller. I mean, it's bad enough, isn't it, to have you know, 10 million, as you say, 12 million young men dying because of the war. But I feel myself now that whoever was responsible for that, and I I must say I put it at at the feet of politicians, it was their job to try and stop all this. That is their job. And they failed. Uh, so not only did they did that result in ten million or more young people dying in that in that conflagration, but I think myself that if it had not been for that war, the pandemic would not have arisen. So I think now those responsible are responsible for ten plus fifty million, that's sixty million. So it, it tells us in modern terms you can start things off with these with these war things, but you never know where they're going to end. And were there things that could be done to help? The doctors and nurses tried and tried and tried. And in the group of doctors and nurses that I'm particularly involved in looking back on, um, I mean, I read their papers in The Lancet. It's as though they're talking to you now. Right in the middle of those battles, when they were in 10 miles of the Western Front, day and night, all they got were explosives going off and, and, and shells and everything else. They were trying to look after these first patients coming in with the what was, was the first kind of wave, the early wave of the Spanish flu. They even set up to try to help these soldiers. They even set up tents and they had uh, aromatics, you know, aromatic compounds and oils um, in, in, those, in, those, in those tents. It was kind of a steam tent. And that I find so admiring. I mean, not as they were risking their lives. They were pretty close to the Western Front, all this going on. And they were making these tents of canvas and steam so they could persuade these ill soldiers to get up and sit in there and get some relief from it. So I think they were, they were really into it. But all they could do in reality was that sort of thing, got the nursing care, a lot of care, um, and try and bring their temperatures down with aspirin. And there's not much else. They could, if their heart began to fail, they had they had belladonnas and they had extracts. They could tackle that a little bit, but overall, again and again, you feel how helpless they felt at the time. Well, uh, whether it's that strain or not, what are your thoughts about the possibility uh, for 
another uh, global pandemic on the scale of the Spanish flu. Well, I think all all virologists, when we look at the past, you know, they've been pretty, not regular exactly, but they've been there coming coming out at us. Um, and remember, the theory is that they're spread, these pandemic viruses come from the great migrating geese and ducks and swans of this world. And they, they've got all of the viruses, the, the mutating, mutating influenza viruses, all of them are in those migrators, not normally causing any problems. So they go on their business around the world mig- on the big migration routes, come into contact with domesticated ducks and and, and uh, creatures and, and, and turkeys, and then they're they're pressurized, they're domesticated ones, because um, it's more like factory farming. And there you begin to get the symptoms if they ca- they catch it from a migrator and then push on the symptoms and the virus onto their keepers. So we know which way the virus comes now. We didn't know that before. Uh, so it's very difficult to say, well, that's not going to happen again, because it happened in, we know from recent history, in 1845, there was a the big outbreak, almost certainly flu, 1889, so-called Russian influenza was quite a big one. The 1918, 1957, 1968, 1976, and then 2009. So they're coming at us, and there's every reason, given the global population increasing and everything, everyone on the move, there's every reason to anticipate and plan for the next one. John Oxford is a virologist at the Royal London Hospital. That's going to do it for us today, but you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your questions about history. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. This episode of Backstory was produced by David Stenhouse, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joey Thompson is our researcher. Additional help came from Anjali Bishosh, Sequoia Carrillo, Courtney Spagna, and Aaron Teeling. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music in this episode came from Ketza, Poddington Bear, and Jazar. Special thanks this week to Brendan Wolf, our reader, and as always, thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Studios in Baltimore. Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Johns Hopkins University. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities. <laughs>